You may be seated. The text for our consideration this evening comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 5, verses 1 to 11. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1222. The word of God says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And this is the word of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. I pray that you use me today to preach your word. You get me out of the way. Let you be heard. Let you be glorified. Sanctify us, those who have believed. And if there's any unbelieving hearts here tonight, save, Lord. Only your word can save. Your gospel is the power, the dynamite of salvation. So may it be preached loud and clearly tonight so that we may leave here changed. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts to know you more and to love you more. Open our hearts, our minds, and our eyes and our ears to hear your word. I pray everything in the saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When you came in here tonight, Joe handed you one of these, our bulletin. And on the front of the bulletin, it says, We preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. Why do we do that? Why do we do that here at Grace? Why would any church preach Christ crucified, buried, and coming again? Why have that printed on our bulletin? Why have that printed so visitors can see and so that believers can be reminded? Will that build a church? Will that preaching bring people in? Who wants to hear about a man who was supposedly crucified? Who wants to hear about a man who allegedly rose from the dead? Who will even believe this? Why do we believe this? Why do they have to believe this? Why should we, as Christians, have to believe this truth and never waver from preaching Christ crucified, dead, buried, coming again? In our text today, we have the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth while he is in Ephesus. 
The church in Corinth is one that he planted around 51 AD. When he was away from this church, many issues arrived. These issues ranged from which teacher they wanted to follow, to sexual sin that even the Gentiles wouldn't do, to issues of worship, issues of abuse of spiritual gifts. And as you read this letter, you realize things really haven't changed that much. Much of these same issues are in the churches today. So in this letter, Paul addresses these issues. And when we get to chapter 15, the apostle also begins to address concerns over the resurrection. But before he goes into details of the resurrection, he lays out what is of first importance. This is the pinnacle of this letter. All the problems he's addressing up until this point and the ones he addresses after lay on the foundation of what he says here. So as we walk through this text today, we'll do so in three parts. Verses three to four, we will see Christ dead and risen for sinners according to the scriptures. Verses five to eight, we will see Christ dead, risen for sinners, and seen by witnesses. In verses nine to 11, and back up to one to two, we see Christ dead and risen for sinners and believed on by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let us begin with verses three to four. The apostle writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Here, Paul starts to remind the Corinthians of what is of first importance. After all these issues that he addressed in the scripture already in this letter, and in light of the issue of the resurrection, what he's about to address, again, he says, this is of first importance. It is of most importance. It couldn't be any more important than it is. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is why we are all here today. It is at least why you should be here today. But if you haven't believed, I pray to God that you do. What is of first importance? What has Paul received? What did Paul hear as delivered by Christ? Jesus Christ died for our sins. But the apostle doesn't stop there. The apostle goes on to say, Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance to what I'm telling you, so just believe me. No. He says, Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The apostle is laying the start of this argument on the foundation of the scriptures, even though the apostle is writing to people and talking to an audience that has Gentiles in it who didn't grow up with the Hebrew scriptures, he still makes his, his appeal to the scriptures. This right here can be an apologetic model for us to follow. We do not have to abandon the scriptures to defend the faith. We stand on the foundation of the truth of what the Bible says. But what scriptures could the apostle be referring to? Throughout the Old Testament, we have the witness of the, of the prophets speaking of a suffering Messiah who is to come. So let's look at one of them right now. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, if you want to turn there. Starting in verses 6 to 4. Isaiah 53. Great Old Testament text. This is what it says. The word of God says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, Smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. And then in verse 10, he goes on. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, take many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for them, for the transgressors. These words were written about 700 years before Christ, before the crucifixion. I've heard many skeptics even think that this was written closer or after the crucifixion because it so accurately depicts what happened. Now, a while ago, I saw a video of a ministry in Israel of this man going around to Jews on the street. And what he would do is he would read them this text. And after reading them this text, he would ask them, who do you think this suffering Messiah describes? Because the Jewish people don't learn Isaiah 53. Or if they learn it, they learn a different interpretation of it. But many of the rabbis avoid Isaiah 53. So this man asks them, who do you think this text is speaking of? And many of them actually answer, that sounds like Yeshua. And that's the Hebrew word, Hebrew name for Jesus. This sounds like Jesus. So many of these Jews, again, aren't taught Isaiah 53. They aren't taught of the Messiah dying for our sins. There are several other texts we can go to. We read already one of them, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These very words were uttered by Christ on the cross. Now imagine this. You grow up learning the Psalms. You sing the Psalms in your worship. And then you hear the Messiah on the cross say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 would pop into your head and you look around and you see it being fulfilled in front of you. Yet still many didn't believe. Even in Psalm 22, it says in verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Piercing of hands and feet wasn't something that was done at the time that David wrote this psalm. It's a picture of the crucifixion yet to come. Or we can go to Daniel 9. Daniel speaking of the anointed one to be cut off. These and many other Old Testament texts are examples of where we see the apostle, where he could be pointing when he says, Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So we see Jesus Christ as prophesied to come into the world to die for our sins. This wasn't something the apostle made up. Isaiah 53 was, again, written 700 years before it happened. And our Savior, we have a Savior to believe in that did what God said he would do. Not just this text, but probably several other texts did the risen Lord himself surely explain to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, verse 27, it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. God in his word says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He says, for the wages of sin 
is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you believe? Are you resting in the crucifixion of Christ for your sins? Are you coming to a holy God covered in the righteous blood of Christ? It's true. It has been written. It has been done. You can rest. Paul writes, Jesus Christ died for your sins. The death you deserve, the death I deserve, in accordance with the scriptures. But there's more we see in verse 4. Paul writes, he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, let us look at the prophet Isaiah and what he says in Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. One of the commentators I was reading on this passage said that this, this verse could say, his grave was assigned to be with the wicked people, but he was with the rich man in his death. The grave where our Lord was buried was the grave that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. In Matthew 27, verse 57, we read, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Luke and Mark also record this account. Jesus was buried in the grave of a rich man. This was in accordance with the scriptures. We can believe Jesus died for our sins and was buried. He was truly dead. This wasn't faked. This was no conspiracy. He was buried in accordance with the scriptures. But Jesus Christ, our Lord, did not stay in the grave. No man took him out either. The Pharisees even had their own guards to make sure no one took him out. But Paul writes, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So let's look at where in the scriptures it could have been said that he would be raised. But let's look at what Peter says it was in accordance with the scriptures. In Acts, Acts 23, oh sorry, Acts 2, verse 23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord was always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, 
to many Jews who were familiar with these texts, explains to them that this had been fulfilled. He explains that this, what was said and written, had to take place, and he tells them that David was not writing of himself, he was writing of Christ. Peter also calls them to repentance and to be baptized, them and their children, as this was to fulfill Old Testament prophecy and also Old Testament covenant promises. And Jesus Christ had to be raised. Paul will go on in his letter to the Corinthians, as we see here, to say this. And if Christ is not, has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then he says in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If there is no resurrection, there is no justification. We are still in our sin. We are without hope. We have no good news. We have no gospel. Of this passage, Matthew Henry writes this. Note, Christ's Christ's death and resurrection are the very sum and substance of evangelical truth. Hence, we derive our spiritual life now, and here we must found our hopes on everlasting life hereafter. If we lose the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we lose the gospel. And his life, death, and resurrection are something we can unite over with brothers and sisters. We all have brothers and sisters in Christ in other denominations. We may differ on a few things here and there. Many of these differences are important. Yet, we are still in the true Catholic, meaning universal, church. We unite over the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And this is the real uniting truth of the gospel. It has been written. It has been done. God said he would send a Messiah to live among his people, to suffer and die and then be raised. Even the promise of God to Adam and Eve, of the seed of the woman being bruised of the serpent, and that seed crushing the serpent's head, it has been done. But what will you do? Will you believe if you have not? Will you trust in him? Will you rest in him? Or will you continue in unbelief? Will you be crushed by the promised seed and experience the wrath of God your sin deserves? Will you stay in your sin, rejecting what had been written and what has been done? Or will you repent and believe the gospel? It is finished. Not only was what was written fulfilled, when it was, people saw it. Our second point is Christ dead, buried, risen for sinners, and seen. Paul writes in verse 6, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now listen to this story of a vision somebody had in 1820. This person claims, after I had retired to the place where I had previously designed to go, having looked around me and finding myself alone, I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. I had scarcely done so when immediately I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me and had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me, and it seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. But 
exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy which seized upon me, and at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world who had such marvelous power as I had never felt before, just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared that I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light had rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spoke unto me, calling me by name and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of the denominations was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak, than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light, which of all these denominations was right. For at this time it had never entered my, into my heart that all were wrong, and which should I join? I was answered that I might join none of them, for they were all wrong, and the personages who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, and all the professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach the doctrine and commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof, and again forbade me to join any of them, that many of their things they didn't and said, many and many other things they didn't say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back and looking up into heaven. This story, in his own words, is the first vision account in 1820 of Joseph Smith. He was 14 years old when, this when he claims this happened. See, he had been praying for wisdom on which denomination, which religious sect he should join. And he claims he was confused should he be a Methodist? Should he be a Baptist? Should he be a Presbyterian? And if you don't know who Joseph Smith is, he is the founder, starter of the Latter-day Saint Church of the Mormons, LDS. Now, this man is known to them as a prophet, and he claims he had other visions and prophecy. And this, is, this first vision account even has different accounts that go along with it. But I tell you this to demonstrate something. There's a huge difference between the story I just told you and what Paul is writing here. There's a huge difference between the story and the claims of Joseph Smith than what we have in the scriptures. Why is it different? Because we, we have no scripture saying that Joseph Smith would get a vision. We have the, the description, even that he has of his vision, is unbiblical itself. He says he saw two personages, which is he saw two people. He saw God the Father and God the Son both having bodies. And there was no one there to verify the story. He was by himself. There was no witnesses. If you believe Joseph Smith, you truly believe him by blind faith. As a Christian, we not only are blessed with the written word of God, we have the written word of God and we also have the testimonies of eyewitnesses which are included in the written word of God. We read earlier in Acts, Peter talking of being a witness, and we'll read some more of his witness later. He saw these events. Here, Peter, here, the Apostle Paul is saying, after Jesus rose from the dead, he showed himself to people. He didn't keep this private. He showed himself to over 500 people. 
He writes, some are still alive. He's saying, when he says, some are still alive, some haven't fallen asleep yet, he's saying, go ask them. You don't believe me that I saw Christ. There's 500 people. Go ask them. They're alive. They'll tell you. The account of Joseph Smith and many other modern-day prophets have neither the scriptures nor eyewitnesses to back them up. So what did Peter say about being a witness? Second Peter, starting verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming Lord, Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For, we, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father... The voice was borne to him by majestic glory. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in the darkness, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from somebody's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, our faith is not blind. We do not believe a story made up by a man. We do not believe an event. We do, sorry. We do believe an event and an experience that was true, not just by one person reporting it. We believe in a person who is fully God and fully man, who did what God said he would do, and who several other eyewitnesses saw. We have the true prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have the very word of God, breathed out by God, by the Holy Spirit. It is as if God literally was breathing on these men as they write scripture. Vodi Bakum writes of this, why he believes the Bible. This is a great quote I love from Dr. Vody Bakum. He says, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses reporting supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecy and claim their writings were divine and not human of origin. And then he often adds after that, he has experience as well. Do you know that what you have come to believe this Christian faith is true. Do you know that it isn't just some feel-good experience you had one day? You may very well have had an experience. You may know the day and time where you came to the Lord. I claim I know the day when I came to the Lord. I have a testimony of before and after believing on Christ. But maybe you don't have a clear-cut day. Maybe you've been a covenant child from, from the beginning. Maybe you can't remember that day, but being a covenant child and being raised in this church and believing and not remembering a day you didn't believe, that is a beautiful testimony. Don't be deterred if somebody's telling you they were this or that before they came to faith. Those are great testimonies too, but if you grew up in the church, God has blessed you from the beginning. It is beautiful. And so Jesus Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, buried in accordance with the scriptures, raised in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus Christ is alive. He did not stay dead. To quote pastor, theologian, 
and hip-hop artist Shylin from his song, Jesus is Alive. Plato is dead, Socrates is dead, Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead, Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead, Muhammad is dead, Gandhi and Haile Selassie are dead, Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. What will you do with this truth? This brings us to our third point. Christ dead, buried, and risen for sinners, believed on by the power of the Spirit and the grace of God. Verse 8, it says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul himself was a witness of the risen Christ. This was after Paul had been persecuting the church. He was a zealous Jew, trained as a Pharisee, and he was strongly opposed to this new way of following Jesus. He even had many killed, and he was present at the stoning of Stephen, giving his full support of that. But here the apostle writes that he is one untimely born. And many commentators agree that untimely born in Greek refers to a miscarriage or an aborted child. The apostle is stating that the Lord appeared to him one so unlikely of life. He found himself unworthy because of what he was doing to the Lord and his church. How unfit, how unworthy are we? We do not deserve to be in this building today. We may have not been at the stoning of Stephen or called for the arresting and execution of others, but Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins on the cross. We are lying, thieving, blasphemers with murderous and adulterous hearts. We sinned against the Holy God. We do not deserve life. But Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has regenerated us. And he revealed to us who he is. I was talking with a young man last week, and he was asking me why his friends don't believe. They, they question, they say, there's no evidence. They're asking for evidence. We don't have any evidence. I told them it's not evidence they lack. I just laid out a bunch of evidence here. It's not evidence we lack. We have the scriptures. We love our sin. That's the problem. It's not evidence his friends, and everyone must be born again. We need to be regenerated. Brothers and sisters, you must be born again. The apostle continues in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. But on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. It's by God's grace that the apostle Paul came to believe It's by the Spirit of God that any of us believe. Saved by grace through faith. Faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in accordance with the Scriptures. And that grace for the Apostle is not in vain. The grace of God towards him was not empty, it was not ineffective, it was not foolish. Paul has been working to preach the gospel. Fruit has come from this grace. And he continued to preach Jesus Christ dead for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And Jesus Christ buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And when the apostle worked hard and preached, what happened? People, by the grace of God, believed and were saved. 
Brothers and sisters, we may have not been called to be apostles as Paul was, but we are, as Paul was, one untimely born. And then we have been born again. By God's grace, we must preach. We have been saved by grace and not by our works, but we are saved to work. And as the apostle did, we must now work. We must work to tell people of this gospel. We work to preach and share the one who was dead, buried, and risen. We work so more can believe. And it really is not as hard as it was in Paul's day for us to share the gospel. Often we tell others of meals we had that were great, of where we got a good deal on this or that product. We talk about movies that we like. We talk about TV shows that we like. How much better to tell them where to find eternal life. And these days... It is as easy as a share or a retweet. If you're on social media, you can see the gospel there. There's resources, there's websites that you can just share with people. Just hit, people see it too. You might not think so that unbelievers are looking at your social media, but they are. Share a picture of your dog, you'll get 100 likes. So they're seeing that. They might not like the gospel that you share, but they're seeing it. So trust the Holy Spirit. And share the gospel. But Paul isn't alone in his work. The apostle also tells us, whether it is him or another preaching, they keep preaching. Once again, I remind you that as Christians, whether Presbyterian, Baptist, Anglican, Lutheran, non-denominational, which are Baptists, if we preach Jesus Christ crucified, dead, risen, and coming again in accordance with the scriptures, we are united by the grace of God. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We are not alone. That is, of course, if you have believed. Have you believed? Have you really believed? Before we close, let's look at how the apostle starts this chapter, verse 1. He says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul started this section after addressing many difficulties and problems going on in the church in Corinth. Now he reminds them once again of this uniting truth. This is the gospel he preached to them. Today, you have been reminded, as Paul reminded the church in Corinth, of the gospel. You have been shown that what we preach is not a made-up myth, but an actual witnessed event in history. You have been reminded why this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, was an event that did take place. Chances are you are here because you believe. But have you believed? Have you received, have you taken this truth to yourself? Or is your faith in vain? Is it empty? Is it worthless? Is it ineffective? Is it purposeless? Or is it just something you're doing to appease someone? Perhaps you're here just to appease a spouse, or a friend, or a parent? Or have you been born again? Have you received and believed the truth? Or are you still in your sin? Are you standing on the solid rock of Jesus Christ? Or are you holding fast? Are you holding fast to the gospel of Christ? Verse 2, Paul writes, you are being saved. If you have believed, you are being saved. This can also be translated preserved. Jesus Christ, if you believe, is holding fast to you. He who began a good work in you will finish it to the day of Christ Jesus. 
But still, there are some that reject these truths. Some who even call themselves Christians who reject what was done in accordance with the scriptures. They strip the gospel, they strip the gospel that is preached to a mere moral tale. They deconstruct the substitutionary atonement to just an example of a sacrificial life and not the lamb sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. Or some make the resurrection into just a spiritual event and not a physical true resurrection. But if you take that away from the scriptures, then your belief is in vain. You believe in a different gospel. You believe in a different Christ. You believe in a savior that cannot save you. Worse yet, you are still in your sin and destruction is coming. The seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, will come and crush in the day of judgment. But if you are a believer, you are saved. And if you are a believer and you still have questions about your faith, ask. Don't be afraid to ask. We have the scriptures with the truth in them. I still have questions, but we need to go to the scriptures. We need to go where the truth is. We can question, but we have the truth. We have the answers. Let us seek the kingdom of God together. As Alistair Begg says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. We can know, and we can believe. Maybe you aren't a believer at all. Let me remind you, Jesus Christ died for sinners in accordance with the scriptures. Guess what? You're a sinner. You need a savior. The wrath of a holy God against sinners was poured out onto his son for his glory and to save those he loves. He became sin who knew no sin. It pleased God to crush him. Jesus saves for God so loved the world that he gave his son. You must believe. Flee from the wrath that is to come. Flee into the loving hands of the Savior who took the wrath for hell-worthy sinners. Jesus Christ was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's important. I, I've, I don't know how many times I've repeated that, but it is true. He did not see corruption. Jesus Christ is alive. He is the risen Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Not a little authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. He sitteth at the right hand of God the Father. He's coming again to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. And that judgment is not a trial of your good deeds versus your bad deeds. It is a sentencing. We need to be found in the righteousness of Christ, covered in his blood. Turn to him now. Believe this gospel preached then and is preached now. It is true. It has been witnessed. It has been done. The apostle says, if you have believed, you are being saved. You are being preserved. You are sealed. God is holding fast to you. We preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again in accordance with the scriptures. Do not believe in vain. Rest in the true finished work of Christ by grace through faith. You may still be asking, but how do we know this? It is as simple as a children's song. Jesus loves me. Yes, I know. For the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that we have evidence. We thank you that it isn't just one person's made-up story. We have the truth of Jesus Christ. And not only that, we have been born again. If we have believed, you are holding fast to us. Let us remember that. Let that change us. Let us go out through the week preaching your word, telling other people about what has happened, telling this true story that you sent to your son to live, die, and rise in accordance with the scriptures. The Bible tells us so. We can know it. It is true. And most of all, it is finished. Thank you. I pray everything in the saving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us now stand and